0: When week after week, month after month, year after year, you meet people who come from a particular church or churches, and they've been there sometimes in leadership positions, Sunday school teachers, deacons, elders, and they don't know the plan of salvation, I want to tell you they're sitting under a false prophet. They are sitting under someone who has lost the gospel, who has blurred the way of salvation, which is so often what people do.
1: Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. As a Christian, have you made Jesus Christ master of your life? Truly, the two are synonymous. You can't really consider yourself a true Christian unless Jesus is Lord of your life. But as in any employer-employee relationship, or in any officer-soldier scenario, or as in Old Testament days the master and the slave, there are different levels of commitment the underling can offer the one to whom he serves. Today's message is from 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Let's join Pastor Bergie now and find out how he can be useful to the master.
0: We've been working our way through the pastoral epistles for the last several months. We've taken them in chronological order, 1 Timothy, then Titus, And now we're in Paul's last will and testament. It's a very moving epistle because it's written just before Paul is taken home to be with the Lord. And the burden of his heart is for Timothy, his son in the faith. But he doesn't write simply for Timothy. He writes for us as well. And every church that has ever read and applied the pastoral epistles has benefited greatly. And as we will see next time, Paul will look down the corridors of time really even into the last of the last days, to the days in which we find ourselves. And he will give a description of a society and a world that in many ways fits us to a T. So this is written not just for Timothy, but for us. And we need to hear and heed the message from heaven. Listen now as we begin in verse 14 of chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, the scripture will be before you on the screen. Follow closely. Paul says to Timothy, remind them of these things. And solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the name of the, on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Now let me remind you where we are in this chapter. If you remember, Paul began with an exhortation for Timothy to be strong in the grace of God, so that he might take the word of God that he received from Paul and entrust it to faithful men who in turn could teach others also. And so Paul told Timothy, Timothy, if you're to do it well, you must be strong in grace, and you must cooperate with grace. You must work hard. And so he started with three illustrations, that of a good soldier, that of a law-abiding athlete, and that of the hardworking farmer. Three metaphorical examples to help us to understand that God blesses hard work as we perform it in the power of the Spirit. And then he goes on in the chapter, if you remember, and he reminds Timothy that he has to be willing to suffer, suffer for the gospel as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And he gives the illustration of the Lord himself. Paul illustrates with his own life. And in a very general sense, he illustrates with all believers. Now he gives three more illustrations of the kind of person God is able to use that of an unashamed workman of a clean vessel and a bond servant. Now I've entitled this morning's message useful for the master. And I take it directly from the text in which we find ourselves today. Useful for the master. You know, there are some believers who are more useful to God than others. It's true. Some believers, God is able to reach down and in His sovereignty and providence, use them as an instrument in a way that He could not use other believers. I believe He wants us all to be useful, and you can if you will hear and heed what God says today. Three beautiful illustrations of how to be useful to the Master. Illustration number one, the illustration of the unashamed workman. Notice verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself... Approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Now, I notice right off that there are two kinds of workmen. On the one hand, there are those who are approved, those who, like coins and metal, tested in fire, have come out as genuine. On the other hand, there are those who are not approved, who are spurious, who have failed the test. Now, the former group does not need to be ashamed. The latter group has every reason to be ashamed. So, Paul in this section of scripture contrasts two kinds of workers and then he gives an example of each. The good workman handles accurately, literally, he cuts straight the word of truth, whereas the bad workman has gone astray, literally, he swerves or he deviates from the truth. In Timothy, you are to be a good workman, you are not to be ashamed, you are to be approved by God as an instrument that he can use. It doesn't matter what kind of approval the men of this world may have as pastors and teachers. Unless they have God's approval, it means little. And so I want us to consider very carefully these two kinds of workmen. First, the good workmen who cut straight. Again in verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself or prove to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Underscore it, handling accurately the word of truth. Now, the verb translated here, handling accurately, is a very unusual word. It's found only once in all of the Greek New Testament. But it's a very interesting word. In fact, sometimes if you do a word study, and, you know, there are many good tools that are available for us all, even if you don't have a knowledge of Greek, there are excellent English tools that will now allow you to study the original languages that weren't available even 10 years ago. And if you were to do a word study on this particular word, you'd discover that it's used only once. And so you can't go to other verses of Scripture that might shed some light on its meaning. And when you have a, what's called a legomenon a word that's used only once in the Bible, there's something else you can do. You can go into classical first century Greek, and you can see how it's used outside of the Bible, and sometimes that sheds some light on its meaning and usage. Or you can even go into what's called the Septuagint, As you know, God originally inspired the Old Testament in Hebrew. It's written almost entirely in Hebrew. There's a few chapters and paragraphs that are written in Aramaic, the trade language of the day. And so most Jews by the first century had lost their ability to speak Hebrew. And so the language of the day was Greek. And you can see God's providence in all of that. God gave the Roman peace, the Pax Romanus, in which to spread the gospel, and He gave a universal language in which to share the gospel, much like English is today. You can go almost anywhere in the world, and usually you can find someone who knows English, Well, God in His providence allowed Greek to be the language of that day. And so they translated the scriptures of the Old Testament into Greek. And you find twice over in the Old Testament, this word used only once in the New Testament. And it helps us to see a little bit clearer its meaning. Proverbs 3, 6, And all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. And so here it's used of a, a path that's cut straight. A second time in Proverbs 11 and verse 5, the righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. So Timothy is charged to cut straight the word of truth. Now the Bible is used outside the word is used outside of the Bible in two ways. Agriculturally of a farmer who cuts a very straight furrow, it's also used of an engineer who cuts a path directly through the wood so that the person can get quickly to his destination. Calvin in the 1st century in his commentary quotes a very famous expositor John Chrysostom and he translates the verse in this way Be diligent to present yourself to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed driving a straight furrow in your proclamation of the truth And so a pastor is supposed to be both accurate and plain in his exposition You've heard it quite often when there's fog in the when there's a Excuse me. When there's mist in the pew, there's uh, when there's mist in the pulpit. There's fog in the pew, right? You know what I mean. You know. I guess it's here today. <laughs> in either case, uh, sometimes you know a pastor doesn't really know what he's about, and the people don't have a clue. And some people say, "Oh, he was deep." Listen, just because the waters are muddy, muddy doesn't mean he's deep. Sometimes he's just foggy, and he's not on target. And so Timothy is to cut a clear, straight path. He is not to trim the message, adapt the message. He is not to be like Elamus, the sorcerer in Acts 13, who made crooked the straight ways of the Lord. Nor is he to be like the people that Paul will describe in chapter 4 with their ear-tickling teaching. No, as a good teacher, he is to handle accurately. Now, those two words, handle accurately or cut straight, is the Greek word orthotomeo. You can hear an English word that derived directly from it, ortho orthodoxy. He's to be orthodox. And so a good pastor is to be scrupulously careful in how he handles the Word of God. Now, how does that become a reality for a pastor or, by extension, for all of us? By the way, he's not addressing just pastors. He's addressing you, too. This is a pastoral epistle, but a pastor is to be an example to the flock and hopefully you have a pastor that you can follow. But how does that become a reality? Well, verse 15 says in the old King James, study and show thyself approved. The new American standard, standard says be diligent to show yourself approved. Now, which is right? Well, both are. There's not a single English word that will translate the full nuance of the original. He's speaking of a study, but not just any kind of a study, of a diligent study. Now, some of us have kind of a casual, lackadaisical kind of approach when we come to the Scripture. But he is speaking here of a diligent study so that we can cut a straight path, that we will not adulterate the Word of God as Paul says false teachers do. So a day is coming when God will test the local church and he will test his pastors and he will see what sort of ministry they had, whether it was one based on the word of God or one that is not. Now, you say, well, that's interesting. But again, I'm not a pastor. Well, God may not have called you to be a pastor, but in some sense, God has called every person listening to me this morning who knows Christ to teach. Now, not as James describes it. James gives a warning to those who would clamor to fill the office. He said, Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you will encourage stricter judgment. There he's speaking of people who do what I do for a living. When you stand behind a pulpit week after week and you open the Word of God to people, you better do it right. Because when you meet Jesus Christ, he's going to closely scrutinize what you've told those people. It's a stricter judgment. Nor is he speaking of the gift of teaching. By the way, you have no control over what gift you get. God sovereignly decides on your spiritual birthday what spiritual gift you will receive. And if he's given you the gift of teaching, you're to exercise it. But the Bible also speaks of the responsibility that every Christian has to teach. Just as there's the gift of serving, There's a responsibility to serve. Here, there's a responsibility to teach. Our Lord, on the most basic level, in His Great Commission, spoke of this Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, teaching them all that I commanded you. Likewise, the writer of the Hebrews reminds us For this time, you, and it's in the plural, the Old English picks that up. You don't see it in Modern English. You could say in Southern English, You all, all of you ought to be teachers, but you have need again. For someone to teach you the ABCs, the elementary oracles of the Word of God, you've come to need milk and not solid food. And so there's a sense in which every believer ought to be involved in Bible study so that at least when it comes to basic issues, they can open the Word of God and say, thus saith the Lord. You know, as a pastor, many times I have to undo the counsel that another Christian brother or sister gave because it was not accurate. And so God wants us to cut a straight path. Now, that's the good workman who cuts straight. In addition, I want you to notice here, the bad workman who swerves. Paul tells Timothy in verse 16, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene, among whom are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now, there are some people who had come into the Asian church whose teaching was just plain bad, and Paul exhorts Timothy to avoid such people. He's already told them in verse 14 that such people who come into the church are to be avoided. Among other reasons, he says, we are not to wrangle about words which is useless, which leads to the ruin of its hearers. The word translated ruin, you ought to circle that in verse 14. In fact, let me give you four words to circle that are four byproducts of teachers who do not cut a straight path, but who swerve in their... Teaching or presentation of the truth. The first is ruin. It's found in verse 14. It's the Greek word catastrophe. You can hear our English word catastrophic. False teaching brings catastrophe into the church. Secondly, in verse 16, underline or circle the word ungodliness. There he says, avoid worldly and empty chap- chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. Then he adds in verse 17, that their talk will spread like gangrene. Would you circle that word, gangrene? So the damage is really in these two verses, 16 and 17, double. It's godless and it's gangreous. It's godless in that it leads people further and further away from God. Literally, it advances them into more and more ungodliness. They're moving, but they're moving in the wrong direction. And secondly, they're like an infection, That comes into the church, you know, you can get a little infection, maybe in your finger, and it can influence the entire body with fever and disease. And so it is in the church, when a little infection comes in, if left unchecked, it brings tremendous destruction. So circle these four things. He says, first of all, verse 14, it leads to the ruin of their hairs. It's catastrophic. Secondly, the fruit of their teaching. It is ungodly. It leads to further ungodliness. Third, it is gangreous. Listen to the way J.B. Phillips paraphrases the verse. For their teachings are dangerous as blood poisoning to the body and spread like sepsis from a wound. And in number four, it's upsetting. Verse 18 says, they upset, circle that word upset, they upset the faith of some. Four tendencies are fruits of heresy when brought into the church. And so, Timothy, you don't mess with these people, you avoid them, you don't let them in the front door, and if God's people had heeded this warning today, the evangelical church would not be in such catastrophe, Now hold your finger here for a moment, would you? And go to Matthew chapter 4. This, by the way, is precisely what Jesus Christ taught in the Sermon on the Mount. There he spoke of false prophets who were wolves in sheep's clothing. They come in the garb of Christianity. They look like Christians, smell like Christians, act like Christians in some way, sound like Christians, but they are not Christians. And you need to recognize the difference. The devil, the Bible says, will come as an angel of light. And if he will come that way, so won't his ministers. Jesus reminded us, verse 13, as he spoke of false prophets and teachers, to enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and many are those who enter by it. Contextually, he is drawing a contrast between a true prophet and a false prophet. And a false prophet paints a very wide gate. And Jesus taught in this verse that most people ultimately are not going to heaven but to hell through their teaching. Verse 14, the contrast, the gate is small. The way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. In 1961, I remember I was just a little boy, We moved into our brand-new home in Worcester, Massachusetts, and there in the backyard, we had three apple trees. The mason, who was also an arborist of sorts, said to my father, you need to cut those down. My dad said, they're beautiful trees. And I can't tell you how many years until I left home... That every winter I get out there and I prune those trees. Every spring I would spray those trees. But year after year those trees would produce rotten fruit. Now there's one still left and they keep it there for the smell of the apple blossoms. But a long time ago they should, cut, they should have cut it down. It was good only for firewood. And Jesus takes that basic illustration when you have a tree that is rotten in its nature and cannot produce healthy fruit. And so, in the spiritual realm, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Now, of course, the fruit test is not always altogether simple or straightforward for a number of reasons. First of all, fruit takes time to grow, to develop, and to ripen. And very often you have a new Christian or an immature Christian, someone who has never grown for whatever reason, and their fruit is not very impressive. So we have to very often wait patiently for the fruit to develop. Neither, for that matter, can you always judge a fruit tree from a distance. If you saw those fruit trees in my parents' yard, They looked like luscious apples, and all the time the kids from the neighborhood would see them from the street about 30 yards away, and they'd come in to get those fruit, and only to find that they got apples that had spots and worms and were infected. You know, when you get up close, you began to see the symptoms of disease, the presence of worms in the fruit. And even so, sometimes a superficial observation of a false teacher will not help you to see. You've got to look very closely. So we need to ask a basic question here. What are some of the fruits of a false teacher that we ought to look for and examine? We'll fast forward a few chapters, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12, Matthew 12. The primary Fruit is really twofold. One is doctrine, the second is influence. The primary evidence of whether or not a man would be considered displaying good or healthy doctrine versus bad is, first of all, his doctrine. Now, remember, Paul is speaking in our text this morning of two men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, whose doctrine he says is empty ungodly and infectious, gangreous, all right? Here in Matthew 12, Christ is speaking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Look at verse 33. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. Now, the next two verses we quote all the time, and very often we apply them in a sense to all Christians, but and that's a legitimate application, but understand them in their original context. He's speaking of teachers who give evidence of whether or not they are a good teacher or a bad teacher by the kind of teaching that they portray. Verse 36, I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. The Pharisees were the teachers of the day. Their mouth was filled with false teaching, and so they condemned themselves. Christ's point is that a man's heart is revealed in his words that you will know a teacher by his teaching. Now, the teaching of a false prophet very often will have some common traits. And one of the common traits of a false teacher is they have an amoral optimism. They tend to make man a little bit better than he really is and God a little bit less just than he really is. They tend to bring God up, I mean bring man up and to bring God down. And typically they speak of God as a God of love and kindness and grace and he is all those things. But you never hear of them speak of God as a God of justice and wrath. Oh, you know, this concept of a liquid lake of fire that men will spend an eternity in agony with no escape. Oh, that's just old fashioned. And so you won't hear that. One dear lady visited our church and I witnessed to her and she didn't receive Christ initially. And she went back to the church she came from here in this town. And that pastor said, well, listen, you know, Brogy, we know better. All of us are going to heaven. All people are going to heaven. We may not be the same, have the same status in heaven, but we're all going there. I want to tell you, he's a false teacher. And that's typically what false teachers do. They create an image of God that is out of balance. Listen to what Jeremiah the prophet said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say calamity will not come upon you. And of course, what they did was a tremendous disservice to the people of God. They lulled the Jews of Jeremiah's day into a false sense of security. They lulled them to sleep in their sin. They failed to warn the people of impending judgment. They came just like God said it would come through Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I don't want you to think that the teaching of Christ here in Matthew 7 is accidental because it's not. He speaks of two gates, of two ways, of two crowds, and of two eternal destinies. And false prophets are quite skilled at blurring the narrow way of the path that leads to salvation. You know, some people will come here from another church, and we're so glad every week God brings new people. And sometimes they will visit from other churches in our town. And sometimes I will read a visitor's card, and when I see the church that is written on there, I can almost guess whether the person knows Christ or doesn't because when week after week, month after month, year after year, you meet people who come from a particular church or churches, and they've been there sometimes in leadership positions, Sunday school teachers, deacons, elders, and they don't know the plan of salvation. I want to tell you they're sitting under a false prophet. They are sitting under someone who has lost the gospel, who has blurred the way of salvation, which is so often what people do. The
1: gospel is the one way to eternal life with Jesus Christ, and it is fundamental to solid biblical teaching. Unfortunately, too many churches in this day and age are lacking in good teachers, and tomorrow we'll see the influence these poor teachers are having on those with whom they come in contact. For a copy of today's message, Useful to the Master, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling us at 877-787-7478 and requesting message 2TM5. Our mission at Search the Scriptures is to save the lost and to grow the saved in their love of Jesus Christ. If you can help this ministry, won't you call us at 877-787-7478 and ask about becoming a Foundation Partner? Our phone number again is 877 787 7478 Join us again tomorrow as we continue our study in 2 Timothy and search the Scriptures.